Escape velocity. and I'm here with Derek on location in Winnipeg in the River Heights area the site of what they say is an old Indian burial ground what are you talking about underneath comedian Ryan McMahon's house it's an imposing Victorian monolith not not really just looks like a pretty standard shh what was that you just tweeted why are you shivering? It's like 15 degrees outside. So cold. Okay, well, I'm going to go to the door. Are you coming? Wait! Should we split up? No, just come with me. Oh, God. Oh, God, help us. All right, Derek, where are we right now? We are sitting in uh, the presidential suite. Of uh, Ryan McMahon headquarters, deep in uh, underground bunker, Winnipeg, Manitoba, undisclosed location on the banks of the—is that the Red? I don't know. There's a—that's the Assiniboine. Assiniboine. Oh, there's a couple of rivers here. Yeah, on the banks of a river. Quite a bit more daylight in here than our usual setup. I feel like I'm getting sunburnt. Ryan McMahon, thanks for having us here. Hey, man, thank you. You're not only on our show; you've invited us to your home. Yeah, and you also gave us cinnamon buns. Johnny's Sticky Buns. This is off to a good start. Yeah. Okay, Ryan, well, we know who you are, and we've been following what you do for quite a while, but our listenership might not know. Hmm. We know you as first as a stand-up comedian. We know you as a podcaster. We see you on the Strombo Show. You have a CBC show. Yeah. You, you're interviewing all these movers and shakers in an emerging movement in Canada, or a re-emerging movement in Canada. So can you back up and tell us who the hell you are and where you're from? Sure. My name is uh, Ryan uh, McMahon. I'm originally from a small town in northwestern Ontario, Fort Francis. Uh, my reserve is uh, Kuchiching First Nation. I'm Ojibwe on my mom's side, Métis on my dad's. And um, I'm based out of Winnipeg, Manitoba now. I live here with my family and uh, I'm a stand-up comedian and a, and a professional writer, yeller, talker guy. When you started doing stand-up, when you first got into comedy, you're starting the podcast, Red Man Laughing. You know, initially, you didn't, it didn't start off as this political mouthpiece yeah, for, no. you know, the preeminent voices on decolonization in Canada. <laughs> um, can you describe the journey from, from being a comedy, satirical mm. podcast and, and how your stand-up act might have changed, or if it did, when you're making the transformation from that to this more politically oriented platform? Yeah, well, it was, was I blame Idle No More for that uh, in a respectful and... Uh, honest way i mean the the podcast itself was uh you know it's called red man laughing it was just a chance for me to 
to play s- clips, stand-up clips from the road. I, I have a bank of them, you know, that I, I thought I could use some of that content. I've, with my improv and sketch background, I'm good at creating characters. I can do that. I can rant. Uh, my friends are musicians. I'll get them. I'll play some music, um, and I'll package this little variety show thing into a 35, 40 minute little chunk every week. And uh, I, I started doing that, and I don't know more hit. And um, Wab Canoe and I were, were texting the day that um, Chief Wallace Fox and Isidore Day and uh, a bunch of others stormed uh, the Parliament buildings to, to break break in, to, to demand a face-to-face chat with, with those that, uh, that are in the building. And we were watching it on TV and we started texting and I just said, you know, I've got all the equipment, we should do something live and let's, people were taking to the streets and that was the very first day, I believe the date was December 4th or 5th. Uh, you know, people were taking to the streets en masse and, and it was a very, very heightened time uh, where nobody really knew it was going to happen. So we felt like we could calm the voices a little bit and actually get the information to people. And we did a live version of Red Man Laughing over the internet. And I remember at that time there was close to, you know, 1,400 people from wherever on our, our live system that we could see that were listening. And, and within the evening, you know, there was some, close to 20,000 hits on, on the piece that we ended up recording and doing. And it was just a, there was a momentum that um, was undeniable with with what we did and and I had to make a decision whether I was gonna you know go back to wacky character voices or continue that conversation and I felt like that conversation was was just too important not to have and so once that happened like did that also signal a shift in the other aspects of your personal or career life did you find like has your stand-up been changing like do you have to take two separate approaches or do you find there is there tension or is there pressure for them to merge? Yeah, I'm trying to find uh, how it works together. You know, I don't. I guess I wouldn't call myself a political comedian. You know, a la Lewis Black or Bill Mayer or any, anyone like that. But I, I mean, I can only go on stage and talk about the world the way I see it. And so, yeah, you know, sometimes it's political. Sometimes I'm aiming at pop culture. Sometimes I'm aiming at uh, Canadian politics, our own politics, my own politics. It's always different, but certainly, I mean, my last album is called The Shittiest Warrior, and it's a self-reflection on I Don't Know More, and from front to back, it, it deals with, you know, from so, like very serious self-reflections like that to being a parent in these political times and what that means to, um, to the way we treat each other in this country to, and sort of all stops in between, and I, I'm, I'm proud of that because that was a very, um, it was all written during that time. I recorded it sort of when it wasn't ready. Um, I just felt like there was an immediacy to what was being said. And I mean, that album was on the front page of iTunes for almost a year. And, you know, only means I made 136 bucks. But, but, you know, the fact that people were listening and, you know, bringing photocopies of the album cover to shows and shit like that, I, I I think it kind of reflected what a lot of us were feeling. And if you were involved, I'm sure we all felt similar things about what do we tell our kids about this now? Well, residential schools are now in everyday conversations for better or for worse in one way or another. You know, what do you guys tell your daughters about that? What do I tell my daughters? How much of it do they need to know? How much of it can I hold on to? So all of the conversations and things that were happening were were intense and it's certainly 
been a big part of my my uh, comedy my journey though you know the my new special that i did this past uh, summer it was called the uh, uh, red man laughing and it was a radio national radio special for cbc radio one which i got death threats over but we can talk about that after um but that like it's called red man laughing and that was a live version of my silly wacky comedy podcast from the first season a variety show with characters and monologues and bits um you know, and to their credit, CBC completely backed off and didn't change a, a word of what I wrote, gave me full creative control and basically said, present us with your best two hours of variety show stuff. And and I, I wrote it over three months and it, and it all came together. And there's some really angry stuff in there, but there's some silly stuff in there. And they, they aired it all. I mean, they, they, they let me do what I wanted to do. And I felt like that special red man laughing that my newest kind of body of work there is probably the best stuff i've ever written because it's it's actually toned down uh, in politics it's more of an open door for people to come in and have this conversation and they kind of my producer there his name is steve glassman he said listen you can bring anything in into these doors you can bring whatever you want but it doesn't mean we can air it so I want you to say everything you want to say, but you have to find ways to say it. Right. And that challenged me as an artist and a writer. And it's the best thing I ever did was listen to his advice. Because we all want to say fuck, but you can't always say fuck. We, we always say fuck. Yeah, no. <laughs> so tell us about these death threats. So, you know, the CBC, uh, it's a, it was $7,000. That's, that's what I got. Or sorry, the total budget was $7,000. That was with my pay and all of my guests, like fees and everything. Jesus. Just no budget, right? It's radio. Um, but I, I obviously did it for the exposure and for the opportunity and, and the challenge. And both shows sold out. We played on a Friday and a Saturday night at the Capitol Theater in Edmonton. And both shows sold out. And the Edmonton Journal ran something after the first show, uh, like a review. And then the comment section in the Edmonton Journal started to fill up. And it's like, how are we paying for this Indian propaganda? Go to this guy's website, listen to his other stuff. He fucking, he's racist. He fucking hates white people. And and the comments started to really explode. And then um, we were supposed to go to the theater early Saturday morning to tighten up the show because at Friday we did go a little bit long. And we were supposed to tighten up the show Saturday morning. So, But I got a call around 10 in the morning on Saturday saying, oh, actually, we don't need you at the theater until 3. I thought, oh, that's really weird. Okay, all right. I didn't think about it. And when I got to the theater, the front gates were locked. I thought, what the? Well, how do I get in? I'm, I'm on the show. Can you let me in? You know? She goes, oh, you're going to have to drive all the way around. And, and there's two gates. You have to go through both. And uh, I said, okay. And I went through. And I didn't think anything of it. And it turns out that they had to close down their main gates put up uh, the other gates sort of the side entrance where they could double their security so that people could get in and you know searching vehicles and stuff like that because there was a a shooting threat where a guy called the theater left voicemails and said that there was going to be four people to come and take care of this problem and you know i i don't uh i always say like i believe in this country i and i do i do believe in this very failed experiment (laughs) Uh, and I think we can do it better. But then you get reminders sometimes that, you know, we are faced with a very real challenge, which is um, just the ongoing 
benefits of settler colonialism and the way that plays out and the way people's privilege gets challenged. They don't like that. And I don't think about it much when I'm on stage, but there are some times when I'm in certain cities or certain places where I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who's out there. You know, people are buying tickets to come and see me. I have on the Shittiest Warrior, the first three or four tracks, I challenge rednecks. I say, if there's a redneck in the audience, now I'll fight you right here. Now I'll stop the show and we'll fight so I can move on because I don't want you here. You know, like I say that and people have heard that and people have emailed me about that and and I mean it. That's the problem. And I, 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 I mean it. Uh, you know, I, I think that I've worked too fucking hard. Or we've been through too much to have to deal with you. I always want to fight rednecks. And if you're here, I will fucking fight you after the show. I hate you. I hate everything you stand for, everything you're about, every dumb thing you fucking say, everything. I hope North Korea comes and gets you first. It's funny because the, the level of challenging of privilege in a stand-up show or a variety show, like it's, it's just talking. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not even, there's no privilege actually being challenged yeah. when it gets down to it. Yeah. It's just some, some guy talking is enough for yeah. people to fucking go off the deep end. Yeah, and it's, you know, if, if they were to listen to what I'm actually saying, I don't want your grandpappy's farm. I don't. <laughs> you can have it. But I need you to acknowledge it. I need yeah. you to acknowledge the history so that the truth can be told. So we have a common language around the truth. That's what I want in the end. You know, I don't, I don't want your farm. I don't want, when you cut your grass, you know, think about me. That's all. Just, just <laughs> say a gachimi guetch, Ryan. You know? <laughs> this is a great lawn I have here. My wife loves these flower beds. She works on them all day. Just, you know, just the acknowledgement is a, is a pretty decent start. And um, then we can talk about what, what, the rest, what the rest of the relationship looks like. So, yeah, it's just that calling out people in that way is just... Uh, like, I did a bit called um, It's Not Your Fault. And uh, basically got the audience, like a call and response thing with the audience. And it started the second half of the show with CBC and basically said, you know, the history, like, I feel like we've come together a little bit here tonight, but I think we have a little bit, we have a little ways to go. So, so let's do this. Uh, I want to acknowledge it is not your fault. This Canadian history that we're sharing and the reality we're in today is not your fault. However, it is your ancestors fault. So we have to talk about that. And I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was like, oh man, this is the fucking smartest. This is my Carlin moment, you know? <laughs> um, not a laugh. And in fact, you know, arms crossed, like, oh, he fucking went there. But I got them. I got them on my side. I got them chanting, it's not your fault. It is your ancestors' fault. <laughs> and then I would go into some horrible piece of history. You know, the 60s scoop stole Indian children from their homes and brought them to the CFS system in which we currently battle today. Yeah. It's not your <laughs> fault. It is our ancestors' fault. And, um, you know, that's uncomfortable for me. It was very difficult to write. It's very difficult to say. So it's got to be difficult to hear. Yeah. And um, sometimes you push the boundaries the proper way, and sometimes it's not quite there. And uh, I'm still figuring out how to do it best. Yeah. So does something sound familiar in what Ryan has had to say about his experience at a CBC special to anything else happening? Well, it is funny 
that you mentioned that, Chris, because weren't we just talking last episode about someone who was speaking up about privilege and the consequences of privilege in a particular arena and as a consequence has received all sorts of threats, including death threats? Does this ring a bell? Anita Sarkeesian, who not coincidentally just the other day in a very high profile event had to cancel a speaking engagement at Utah State University because of a very specific Mm -hmm. threat to have her killed at that speaking event and the police would not guarantee uh, her safety by patting people down for guns because of the insane open carry gun laws. So... Two Uh, anecdotes, but we're already seeing a pattern. If you do not belong to the privileged dominant group and you speak out in any way that conflicts with what the dominant group wants to do willy-nilly, you may be shot in the face. (laughs) Yeah. Nice world we got here. It makes you wonder how we got here. It does. And it made us wonder that while we were talking to Ryan. So we asked him that very question, didn't we? We asked him to give us an illustration of how we got here. And he did so with this intriguing story. I worked on a film this summer called Colonization Road. It's a documentary produced by Dr. Evan Adams from the Hey Victor guy from Smoke Signals and uh, Michelle St. John, a very talented um, actor as well. And uh, they produced it and it came from a piece that Michelle created years ago, back in the early 2000s with a theater company, Turtle Gals. They were in my hometown on my reserve and uh, there's a colonization road, it's called that, uh, that runs on my reserve from our old burial ground site all the way along the river out towards Kenora. And um, Turtle Gals took a picture in front of the sign and they're pointing at it going, what the fuck is this? And uh, I ran into Michelle a couple of years later and she showed me the picture. See, I want to give this to you. What do you think of this? And I, th- I thought, well, I, I don't know. Cool, you're on my reserve. Awesome, you know? And she said, no, the road, colonization road. And it, it was one of those like, the world just goes in slow motion. And I was like, yeah, what the fuck? And I put it together. That's on our, those are the old burial mounds. What the fuck? Colonization road starts at our burial grounds. Whoa, what? And she said, I'm writing a theater grant for this. I'm going to do some research. Do you want to be a part? I'm like, fuck, I'm in. Let's do it. And we're going to create a theater piece out of it. Didn't get the funding. She got some other funding. She decided she was going to do some research on her own. I went a different way, got busy doing things. And a couple of years ago, she brought the project back and she had been through a number of different forms. And now it was this documentary piece. And so she did a pre-interview with me about it. And she shared some of the research around the Colonization Road Act and what it was. And it was basically an act after the War of 1812, North and South separates, the French go north, the English go south. And we run out of room in Toronto. There's nowhere else to put these fucking people. They go from like a population of 35,000 to 160,000 in like 15 years. People are getting sick, there's disease, and it's just a mess in Toronto. So a uh, confederation happens and they decide, we got to get these people out of here. We're fucking start shipping them out. And so the lumber barons and then the people that created the then government of the day decided to create this thing called the, the Free Land Grants, the Homestead Act, and Colonization Road Act. 
and people just started getting free land grants and and writing home to their ancestors saying come on over there's this thing free land grants and of course the poor the landless those in 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 england that that had nothing and nothing to lose by coming over here came over here to seek refuge and got the free land grants and started heading west and if you look at the timeline of canada the way treaties were settled you know treaty one is is here in manitoba treaty two is is here in this area as well well why is treaty three in northwestern ontario when that was the first place they hit and these colonization roads essentially the number one highway and many others to southern to the south of toronto and southern ontario up north to Georgian Bay, Perry Sound area. All of these colonization roads were just that. They were roads that led to the colonization of the land. And they were roads built by the government to colonize. And that's where the people with the free land grants traveled along those roads. And they were essentially given the free land grant and said, you go down that road as far as you can. And when you get to the end, you're there for 30 days. You help build the road. After you've built the road, pick your plot of land report the land back to the the land agent and then meet these criteria which were like you have to clear a certain amount of hectares you have to build a lodge that is used at least six months of the year this size by this size you have to plant a certain size garden on that that plot they gave them the criteria and that free land grant and the homestead act and colonization road act were the things that 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 settled the west and in this film, we're doing this documentary about all of this, and, and every time, every turn is like a brand new film. You know, just what those free land grants were all about, and, and who controlled them, and, and you know, the lumber barons were really getting free labor from all of these people coming overseas, and, and the slave trade that was actually happening with a lot of the native people in southern Ontario, how the uh, Haudenosaunee and the Anishinaabe people around Toronto, Mississaugas, ended up losing their land and, and, and being pushed out. And they already had uh, their own for, form of farming and, and trade routes. And, you know, just the dis- complete destruction of the indigenous economy and everything. So as we're doing research for this, this little documentary, I mean, my, everything I know in my life is being questioned. How did Colonization Road happen to be on our burial grounds, you know? How, who removed those burial grounds? What the, what happened over here? And so we're digging around back home, which nobody back home is happy about. Everybody's kind of going, look, we don't want to upset the town folks. Like, let's keep this. Like, why are you why are you digging around here, man? Just leave it alone. Kind of through their teeth, right? Just yeah. fucking leave it alone. Okay? We're not going to do that now. By town folk, you mean? By the people in Fort Francis. Okay. Uh, my mom refused to be in the documentary. So, you know, I can't, just, it's okay. And, you know, uh, you kind of learn things and you're reading their documents, their being Canada's documents. It's in black and white. It's, you you can't say this was accidental. Uh, No one was defeated. Canadians don't know. There were no Indian wars here. This, we settled this through treaty, through handshakes, through agreements. That's why, that's how you got here. And it's all, and we're using all of the, the, the historical documents to, to look at it. And you can see very clearly in plain English how deliberate all of these plans were from the Indian Act to uh, these other acts that I, I, I've mentioned already. You can see the plan 
I mean, you can almost, it's masterful. And hats off to them, man. Like, this was <laughs> fucking a job well done, you know? Congratulate, you did it. Holy fuck, did you do it? But in the documentary, you know, we really, we really are trying to create not blame. It's not even political at this point. I'm past that point in my life where I'm mad about it. It's the common language around the history of this country that we need. Because then you have a decision to make. And if you still decide to be an asshole, then you're a fucking asshole. At least I know. But with this information and why I say I believe in this experiment, this failed experiment, I believe most people are good. And I believe in my heart that most people, once given this information, will decide which team they're on. And make no mistake, there's only two teams. And you have to pick a side. Uh, But it's very difficult to pick a side when you don't know what the jerseys are and you don't know what sport you're playing. And you, you, you have to have that information. And I just really fundamentally feel that people in this country don't have that information. I was on a plane with a history teacher taking 70 kids from Sudbury to Normandy to commemorate their the D-Day. They've spent a whole year on a D-Day unit and took 70 high school kids to Normandy. And I'm sharing a, a seat with him on a, on a plane. And he starts cracking up. He sees my laptop. Well, that's an interesting sticker. Decolonize. You don't see that every day. What does that mean? I said, well, you know, I kind of told him what it was. And it's this media experiment thing that some people are doing. And that's interesting. I'm a history teacher. 36 years I've been teaching history. And I thought, boom, fuck, I'm in. Let's go. Tell me about treaties, old man. You know, tell me about it. And he couldn't. He couldn't. I said, what's the treaty up near Sudbury where you come from? Uh, Treaty, sad, no, no. It's a peace and friendship treaty. You know, like I, I've put in the work. I don't know this shit. I'm not an academic. I'm a fucking dummy that tells jokes. But I've put in the work because I can't live without that knowledge. I can't raise my kids without understanding how and why I'm here. And... That was a shocking thing for me to sit with a history teacher that couldn't tell me how many numbered treaties there were. I don't expect the Canadians working at the Tim Hortons or at the Canadian Tire to be able to tell me that shit per se, but a history teacher that is taking a bunch of kids to Normandy should have a real base knowledge of Canada. And um, so I feel like the fundamental language, the history and the understanding I think has to be there. And that's the the goal of that documentary you're absolutely right people don't have the info i fear though our culture has done a lot of damage to our people Mm. and that we even with the right information i fear people would pick the wrong side yeah Uh, because because our culture is community is not a real it doesn't mean anything in our culture really it's atomized people live in their houses and they watch their tvs and they get what they can and fuck everybody else who tries to fuck with them i think that's well i'm I agree. And I think the documentary is also about capitalism, globalization. Uh, our, this is a, like when I say a failed experiment, I mean the, the, the social experiment, the politics, uh, the resource-based economy that for some reason we've all just covered our eyes and hope for the best. We're fucked. So don't get me wrong. But I believe that <laughs> nobody wants to die. I believe that that there can be a dialogue and a discourse around a better way. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to, that's what I'm trying to do. I guess that's what, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, that's why I'm podcasting with P 
people via Skype to try to get their ideas out to people that need them. And, and I'm one of those people, you know, I, I'm, I'm so lucky to be able to sit and talk to Leanne Simpson and others that are just completely changing my life in real time. So if that can happen, if that change can happen with me, I, I it's a bit naive and a little, a little soft, no, but I, I have to believe it can happen for others. It's the only reasonable way to proceed. I don't know why I even brought that up because then why don't we just all kill ourselves? But <laughs> hey, hey, let's do that right now. Yeah, I got guns. <laughs> um, I guess what I was trying to say was we can get the information to everybody, but until people in our culture learn how to put themselves in other people's shoes, which some people, they, they have transformative moments where, they, where they're like, when they transform, it's because they've been able to put themselves in someone else's shoes. Mm. But our culture and our federal government that funds things like a trip to Normandy or funds uh, some billion dollar boondoggle over the war of 1812 promoting Canadian values or whatever, it's all purposely to distract us from the real history. You know, these strange self-aggrandizing moments in history that and I think a lot of Canadians buy into it I mean my big question like I, I get asked to go to colleges universities high schools and what I always ask people is say what does it mean to be Canadian who are you because it's not Don Cherry and Molson Canadian so tell me who you are tell me where you come from who are your people and um, I was on a flight the other day with a guy I saw him in the the airport lobby like he was massaging his brother it was very weird i mean and i know it was his brother because he said oh brother like as he awkwardly rubbed him like clearly homophobic to yeah, yeah. to some degree you are my brother but you are in great pain in your upper back so i rub you my brother whom i love because we share a mother and in no way do I have an awkward boner right now. Um, but it was right beside me. And uh, he was very chatty, a very, very uh, talkative man. He was saying hi to people as they walked by. He was holding a Gary Zukov book, you know, that self-help guru guy. And I thought, that guy's a, he should be in a sitcom. That's a funny guy, I thought to myself. He's my seat partner from, <laughs> from uh, Edmonton to Winnipeg. And... Um, you know, he lived 30 years in China, teaching English at first, got into Eastern medicine, holistic healing, acupuncture. He's coming back. His mom is sick. And uh, I was reading uh, Clearing the Plains. And he goes, oh, what is that? And it's, you know, do you know Clearing the Plains? No. Yeah. So it's, a, it's about the starvation of people on the plains through uh, hold, withholding rations, etc. And food experiments and all kinds of different techniques that were used uh, by Indian agents and the government and the church to kill people. And it's, uh, it's all backed up by like medical data, genetic testing and different things where they talk about like um, the size of Cree people back on a buffalo diet and a, a traditional diet versus what was introduced wheat, flour, sugar mm -hmm. through residential school and such. Anyway, so I told him what it was and he goes, wow. Kind of like dismiss. Wow, I, you know, like oh oh, this doctor at the University of Saskatchewan is making this up. Yeah. Like, so I, you have a decision to make in that conversation. Like, are we going to share two and a half hours of fist fighting, or am I going to open my heart up a little bit and say, let's let's have this conversation, yeah. right? 
So I, I just, you know, I, I, I just asked him what he thought about Canada and, you know, where we're at today. And he doesn't know much. And uh, he's got an uncle that works out in Fort McMurray. And I said, well, that's an interesting experiment. I'm trying to goat him in just far enough into the conversation where I can drop my status card and go, boom, motherfucker. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but uh, and we had a good talk. We had a good talk. And and. I felt really bad for him in a way where he was he was so ignorant and and unknowing and that's where i guess when you're participating or when you're actively working through a decolonization process where you are uh, aware of things and when you are living uh, uh, that way it almost strengthens you it makes you bigger you know it makes you taller like i feel pity <laughs> for dummies you know like I feel like I can help you you know if, if you're willing to do it like this is where you have to be this is the way to go man quit that shit come on over here uh, no one will make fun of you it's like welcoming the new kid at school like <laughs> come on man we've got a cool group of friends over here we're hanging out but that's how I felt about this guy and I thought you know that this is probably how it's going to happen you know if things are going to change you know, we have to personalize these things. We have to create dialogue because mm -hmm. it's not going to happen in textbooks. It's not going to happen through media, uh, mainstream media. It's going to happen by us talking. And there's a good example. I know I'm going on and on, but there's a there's a good example of this during the shooting of our documentary this summer. We interviewed this young woman. Her name is Tika Newton. Uh, her family owns a large parcel of land around Lake of the Woods, Kenora area. And Tika did the interview for Colonization Road because her family owns this large swath of land. And in the research, what I read about Lake of the Woods in this area was that there's a number of displaced Anishinaabe people and tribes that were moved and relocated and um, dispossessed of their territories there. And that, that interlap was uh, almost too good to be true for the film. And like, we gotta, we gotta really talk to about this she was very gracious with her time and and came in and talked with us and she's in a tough position i mean she's you know uh, uh her family directly benefiting from settler colonialism beautiful piece of land around lake of the woods highly desirable land worth probably millions of dollars came into the fire and came and talked about it and we had a very good conversation i went in there with a different idea of what was going to happen certainly with kind of my hand on my gun as i walked into the conversation uh but she you know she told the story of her family leaving the war and and running you know and looking for a better life and finding that refuge here and you know her grandparents you know coming over and having to leave family back in austria i believe it was austria i apologize if i'm wrong um, but having to leave them back there and that haunting them, you know, for the rest of their lives over here uh, uh, as, you know, new Canadians. And uh, slowly her, gra you know, her grandpa was a carpenter and he built their house and then he helped build another house and he built another house. And pretty soon he got known for that. And he became a really, well, I guess, relatively wealthy person in that area. And uh, they amassed this land through time. And in my mind going into this interview here's this like non-native family very wealthy owns all this land um there's just all the home the homeless population 
in Kenora, they say 80% of that homeless population comes from these communities. They literally have nowhere else to go. Kenora being the shithole of racism that it is known for. Just like I'm, all of this is running through my mind and you own the land, lady. So let's get into it. But that's not the way the conversation went. In fact, by her telling me her family's story, it opened up my eyes to what settlers experienced when they came over here. And it was the beauty of this land. It was the beauty of the relationship that Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Nehio, the relationship we shared with people that came over was of peace and friendship. That's why we signed treaties. That's why there wasn't war. So if my ancestors did that, should my hand be on my gun? Probably not, right? And as I learned more about her family story and the way, you know, I believe she said almost every night her grandmother cried herself to sleep because of the guilt of having to leave people. And that's some heavy shit. And I thought to myself, there's a side of this story that I've not heard. And that is that settler side. And while I'm certainly not going to high five white dudes in suits anytime soon, I'm certainly going to be more aware of that history. And I'm going to try to work with that history a little bit more. And I'm going to try to be a little bit more understanding of that shared history. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just think I have to be, you know, I, I think it, that agreement that was made through treaty, the pipes that were smoked, the, the, the gifts that were exchanged, that's what it meant. That that's what I would have to do. Now, I still have a gun, <laughs> right? I still have a gun, but uh, maybe my hand's not on it all the time, you know? No. It's an interesting take to hear from Ryan on, on Tika's story impacting him in that way, making him making him think a little deeper about what the settler experience would have been and how that would influence someone generations later in, in how they feel about colonization and maybe having a bit of a reactionary defense on being called out on that. Yeah, it's a generous take. Yeah. Because more often than not, it doesn't go both ways. No. There's not a, a generous take courtesy of settlers in regards to indigenous history. Of course. So good for him. Well, big, he's a big hearted guy. Yeah. And I think what's valuable about that is just, it's not easy to feel a lot of sympathy when a dominant group fucking has it all. But it's important to remind yourself of those individual stories that these are just humans and they have their own, they have their own connections. They have their own histories that they're considering. And it's a level of patience. I don't think I would have get but, put in the same situation. Yeah. But that's because I'm privileged and I just don't have patience with anybody. Yeah. Because I fucking get what I want all the time. <laughs> but Ryan did go on to talk a little more about the importance of calling out people's privilege and how that can be a challenging thing for everybody involved. I found it offensive. Calling out privilege is, is never easy to do. And the privilege that people have, they don't see it as privilege. They, they, see, they, they earned it, you know. And most of them fucking didn't earn it. The story of this woman's uh, grandfather, you know, the the way they had to, uh, she called it like plant between the stumps, you know, they had to clear the land, cut the trees, plant between the stumps, eventually burn the stumps, pull the stumps, replant, you know. She she talked about hearing stories about how difficult the winters were and and all of this stuff. And those are difficult stories, you know, those are some, there's some challenges to the family staying there and being there. And and I, I can appreciate those kind of family stories but you know 
you you wake up and you're born into a beautiful four-story log cabin on the shores of Lake of the Woods and you get bored there in the summer because I'd rather be somewhere else. You know, like you have to acknowledge you were an asshole and you've got some privilege that very few experience and it's that trade, you know. Yeah, and I, I don't know what people are willing to trade or not trade, but, but there has to be some sort of give and take to, to any type of new relationship. And that's why the reconciliation conversation is bullshit to me the hold hands and round dance in the streets is bullshit to me we need people from that privileged side to come forward and say yeah we get it we understand now what what are we going to do because uh, we can you know i can talk about it all i want it's it's not going to create the change that really has to happen and i don't know how that happens you know like a, is it with my daughter's friends now where hopefully their parents are getting it and they're understanding it like here's a question for you guys have you seen a change since i don't know more like have you kind of either through the media or the media attention or the way indigenous issues are covered have you experienced a change in your travels or your your circles i think there's encouraging signs of polarization you know you know you get to see who's where on the continuum more than we did in the past 20 years, like since Oka. For me, my personal anecdote about it is my sister, who is older than me and has been a lifelong, completely disinterested person in issues of justice, who uh, for some reason she picked up the book An Inconvenient Indian mm. and read it and gave that book to me for Christmas with a note on it that you might already know about this stuff, but I had no idea. And now she's just like a flaming advocate for she's a Cherokee princess yeah, yeah. No, she, she just she, she's almost 50 and she can't believe it mm. you know took her yeah, I've, I've been her brother for over 40 years and I've been telling her every fucking year you know but I've, I've never been able to get through to her but Thomas King got through to her somehow you know with the way he wrote that book yeah and I'm guessing that book arrived in her life because of the dialogue that Idle Amore created nationwide, mm. which doesn't exist in the States as much, doesn't exist in Australia, where the issues are very, you know, it's like a mirror image of Canada. Yeah. So something kind of unique and special has been going on here in Canada, I think. So that's a positive sign. Yeah. I hear stories like that a lot. Mm. And I guess in my, my privilege, traveling all over the place and doing comedy and even seeing my show split now, you know, the other day I was at York University and... I had probably, I mean, I was on a split bill with Amir Rahman, but, you know, there's probably 30% non-Indigenous students there, probably close to 50%, you know, Southeast Asian students, and then a mix uh, of all these other students. We're not at a Russell Peters show, you know. Uh, we're making fun of race and shit. We're, we're doing decolonial work on, on stage, and, and that, was, that wouldn't have happened three years ago with me. So I feel like the chains are moving a little bit. And I think this is exactly the right way to, to continue moving the chains, as frustrating as it can be. So after like going back to your work with the podcast, you've had the chance to have these long discussions with this huge variety of activists, academics, uh, artists, thinkers from all across the spectrum who are all talking about, for the most part, the same thing. They're talking about indigenous resurgence in Canada. They're talking about decolonization. So uh, you as the arbiter of these, of these interviews, what have you 
pulled, like if you could pull a kernel from this experience that you've had talking to all these people, Mm. what can you offer up for us? I mean, I think that my conversation with Leanne Simpson was probably the most transformative for me. Chapter three of Dancing on Our Turtles Back is, I think, probably some of the most profound writing I've ever read. And there are some basic concepts or tenets that that she talks about, you know, Biscabaink, Anjikone, Nikonige, and Debuewen. Biscabaink is uh, like returning to yourself, so decolonizing, returning to who you were. You know, it's the idea of going back. Anjikone is a concept of like looking around you and being aware of all considerations, you know, I guess kind of going slowly through through time and space, you know, being aware of all things. Nikonige is kind of like um, karma, you know, that what goes around comes around. What you what you what you put in is what you're gonna get out. And then Dabuewin is is truth where you're working with your own truth, but also the truth around you. And those four things in that chapter were like first it called into question everything I've ever done in comedy because I'm very reactionary. As soon as I, I open the paper, I'm like, fuck this. <laughs> I, I write for an hour, right? That's not, <laughs> that's not good karma. That's not being aware of all sides and looking around you, you know? That's not returning. I'm, I'm a bad Ojibwe, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, but that chapter, I think, is, is one that if I could give something for everybody to read, it would be that. Because not only was it simple, but it was profound. And I think Leanne Simpson is a great teacher for all people. And that conversation really, for me, kind of uh, put me in a place where I really had to think more about my responsibility on stage, what I say on stage, how I say it, and the responsibility that comes with the power of being up there as an amplifier, you know. Not the power power it brings me as a, you know, a comedian, but as a, I'm trying to amplify the ideas and the voices of the people that don't have my weird job. So it was that chapter really that I think for me cemented it. She's, she's rock and roll, man. I love her stuff. I think some of our more dedicated listeners will recall the name Leanne Simpson. Oh, they fucking well better. They better. Episode what was it? Seven? Epis- Five? Episode, it's somewhere between episodes one and 25. Right. Where Leanne Simpson came on our podcast. Yeah, the Idle No More episode. Yeah, we discussed her book, Dancing on Our Turtles Back. Mm-hmm. So go check that out. Check out what he's talking about. And a funny thing happened after he talked about this. I interjected. Um, as per usual. As per usual. White guy interrupts the native guy. Yeah. Tell him what he thinks. Yeah. I, I tried to share with Ryan something I think I had meant to share with Leanne at the time mm-hmm. during the interview. It was something about how, because our culture is so stripped of meaning, a lot of settlers turn to Eastern religions. You know, you go into some hippie bookstore and everybody's buying up books based on some Japanese or Indian yeah. philosophies. Yeah. And the thing that struck me about her book was that all those teachings are they're really it's a there's a gold mine of them here what i thought was funny about that was that leave it to the white guy to see what he can get out of indigenous resistance but but ryan was pretty he was pretty forgiving with me 
he he i mean he didn't i'm sure he picked up on that but he let it ride yeah i don't i don't think you were i don't think you were ill-intentioned in your observation no just it's an interesting one just doing what comes naturally to the white man (laughs) just fucking take what i can get out of it afterwards we stole this house yeah it i mean it's it is that her book made all of us feel like that like oh i thought i thought i knew but um there's a humility that comes to knowing too i mean i'm sure you know a lot but the humility that we feel when we're when we're growing that that moment of recognition is important and that's what we should be seeking out on the daily mm-hmm. is like what, what what am i gonna what am i gonna learn today how, how am i gonna grow how am i gonna achieve this wellness you know today and um yeah it's it's works like hers that i think make you feel that way and i yeah and i go, I go back to you know during the height of idol no more i was at a, a thing when i was in toronto and i got asked to go to ctv to this panel and uh, i went and sat on this panel and before they went live we got delayed and uh so everybody all of them sitting with all these assholes at a table and you know they start to ask and they said i found something interesting you said in the pre-interview here uh what did you mean by the land is your god what exactly is that and i was like well, you know, like it's pretty self-explanatory, man. Like that's where I go to pray. Everything I need comes from the land, water, air. You're the exact same as me. Everything you need to live comes from the land. Everything. Period. Full stop. So what are we doing? And this is a, this is a, this is a, like a white conservative pundit that was like, well, okay, I don't know that. That's clear. And I was like, so that. We're not different, motherfucker. We're the same. <laughs> you know, we're the same. You just choose to close your eyes, you know. And at the end of the day, that's really it, is that we all have a lot to learn from each other in, in many different ways. And, you know, that that's if we could find a way to share more of that philosophy or I don't know, religion's kind of a weird word, but to find that, that way of thinking, you know, that way of knowing is, I think there's a lot of value in it. Yeah, for for everybody, and and those divisions, I feel like those divisions sometimes, you know, through religion or politics or whatever, are difficult to work through when we believe fundamentally that we're different. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if you don't drink water, you die, mm-hmm. and if you don't have some sort of food source, you die, and if you don't take care of those two things, you're going to die. So we're the same. And we need to work towards the, just the fundamentals again, because that's where we're at. But yeah, it is, a, it is a weird thing. And I mean, those are some real differences. I mean, there are some different, there are absolutely, there are differences in philosophies and ways that we see things. And, but again, I think we can find a way to talk about those and find the commonalities mm-hmm. where, you know, yeah, we're different. But for the most part, I think we all want healthy families. We all want to live decent lives. You know, we want to be able to go swimming on the weekends at some place we love. And our connection to land and, and place, I think, we all have. But it's our relationship to it, I think, is, is different. And that's where we have to kind of mm-hmm. go into the philosophical side of things a little bit more, where we try to explain, you know, what's kept us well for, they say, time immemorial is that, you know, my pipe, the pipe stem, the rock, the medicines that go into my pipe the medicines I burn to smudge, all that stuff, it all comes from the land. So that's my form of religion. So when I say I'm willing to die for the land, I don't mean I'm going to beat up a home intruder. I mean, if somebody comes in here and they can fucking have it, I don't want to, go ahead. 
it's stuff. Go, you can have my stuff. Just ask for it. Don't break a window. Don't break a. Don't break the window. Just leave a note. Can I have your TV? Yeah, I'll put it outside. Come and get it. But our relationship to the to the land and our stuff, I think, is is the one that is is the most different. You're about to launch a podcast network. Yeah. Or by the time this comes out, you you likely have already launched a podcast network. Yeah. Called Indian and Cowboy. So, tell us everything about this. Why is this happening now? Uh, what what shows will you be launching with? Like, what are you hoping to uh, to achieve with this? <laughs> I'm not hoping to achieve much uh, with it, but I am hoping to create a a space for Indigenous content to live, um, Indigenous made, uh, produced, created uh, content uh, to live. So IndianandCowboy.com is the, is the website that uh, will house this uh, series of podcasts where. We put an open call out to podcasters, to people that want to join the network, basically bring their stuff onto the network to help build and promote it. Dropping hints here to you guys. Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, those that are uh, already successfully podcasting, if they'd like to come over and... uh, um, But it's just a play... It's basically a... Yeah, it's a network of podcasts that uh, will be housed at IndianandCowboy.com. We've paid for the podcast to get uh, websites built and apps developed and all that kind of stuff, artwork and sound imaging and uh, it's zero budget. It's unfunded. We're not going to take money from corporations or people that we don't agree with. Um, we've been offered those types of things. A native guy out in Alberta that runs, a, he runs camps for the oil sands and he's a Cree guy, millionaire, multimillionaire who to the tune of, couple hundred thousand dollars said he would be an angel investor and but it's just one of those things where it's like okay well yeah i could take that and we would instantly hit the ground running and we'd be able to do the tour that we wanted we'd be able to do the different series pay for the documentary stuff that we wanted to do but um if i'm telling you the land is my god except for when i need to pay for shit uh, it becomes one of those ugly lines where I'm still trying to figure out the rules. Right. Um, I'm not saying that we're not going to take sponsorship from somewhere or that I'm not, I'm looking for investors. I'm looking for people that are, are ethical and on sort of the right side of where the company sits to, to, to build a, a network that can sort of self-sustain. We're not looking to make money per se, though I hope each podcast that comes on the network ends up touring and doing live shows and being booked to speak and get paid to do the work that they're doing. But it's, you know, it's essentially, um, it's going to be a, a company that is going to look after our own uh, content. So for now, it's going to be a podcast network. And uh, right now there are four shows, my show, Red Man Laughing, my other show, it's called Ryan McMahon Gets Angry, where I just take something from the news and, and swear about it for 10 minutes. So those are two podcasts that I've been doing for years that sort of are anchor podcasts just because they have listeners. They already have people that have the apps on their phones and everything. And, and in the podcasting space, there's just not a lot of people that podcast. So I have to use those two. Um, so, and then we have two other podcasts, Métis in Space, which is done by the brilliant Chelsea Vowell and Molly Swain, where they basically 
deconstruct colonialism and science fiction, which is very interesting. There's always like a native element <laughs> to, to sci-fi, and they've um, they've they're five episodes in, and it's really they drink wine and talk shit. It's 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 really funny. And then we have a, a new, brand new experimental kind of thing uh, called Stories from the Land. And that's, I think, going to be our big hit, is Stories from the Land is uh, a community-sourced indigenous storytelling podcast. So we're letting anybody submit a story. They can record it on their smartphones. Um, they can Skype into us, however they can record it. Um, and we'll take their story from the land. So their connection, disconnection, reconnection, mm-hmm to the land because not all of us are hunters and trappers and fishermen but we should be able we should have that conversation about why or why why we are or why we aren't and stories by the land is going to be hosted by um, Hayden King who's uh, out at Ryerson University a very very smart instructor out there very very smart guy and then we're in the works for with four other ones a podcast called Treaty which will basically be all about treaty and we have some treaty experts that are working on it a former producer from the National Film Board is leading that, and that'll launch uh, January 1st. We have another one, uh, it's kind of like Wab Canoe's song Heroes, mm-hmm. where we're going to highlight sort of uh, leaders, historical leaders from, from the past. Uh, there's, that's not named yet, that show. We have one called Spirit, which will be led by a former APTN reporter, CTV news reporter, She's based out of Calgary, and she's putting together a, a podcast series basically about achievements of the spirit, things people have overcome, sto- you know, stories of hope, though I think hope is bullshit. <laughs> Fuck hope. <laughs> um, but that, you know, really, really powerful stories of transformation, etc. So she's working on that. And the fourth one I can't really talk about, though, if Nick Sherman, singer-songwriter Nick Sherman in Thunder Bay is listening... <laughs> <laughs> Nick Sherman, we were on tour a couple of weeks ago and we talked about recording front to back the start of you working on your new album <laughs> and you podcasting during the trials and tribulations of that to bring people behind the scenes because it will sell advanced copies of your album and create buzz otherwise not created, Nick Sherman. Uh, still love to do that, which would be a fascinating look at sort of independent work that artists have to do behind the scenes and so those are you know we're gonna by january 1st we'll have eight podcasts on the network and uh, we'll be looking at developing documentaries and other things as well so it's really trying to create an industry where there isn't one um, representing ourselves in the way that we are rather than try to put our town clothes on and go on aptn and act good Uh, you know we want to we want to really represent who we are you know i think young people a lot of the time feel like the media that's being created out there doesn't represent them and we're trying to give them an alternative and it's 2014 why am i still waiting why am i waiting for someone else to tell my story
Nice guy, that Ryan McMahon. Yep. Smart guy. Yep. That was the heavily redacted interview. There was tons more stuff we talked to him about, but we just couldn't get it in. Yeah, it's, it's, it, was a, it was a little long. We could have gone on a lot longer. I almost wonder if we should have done two parts. One that was like, because we talked a lot to him about just how he got into comedy, his work yeah. in theater and improv, and yeah. there's a lot of interesting stuff. He's, he's such a great storyteller. Everything he wants to say, he kind of wraps in a story and it makes it super interesting to listen to. He's sort of like the Abraham Lincoln of Indians. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously I think we would encourage people to check out his stuff. He's got a, an album on iTunes. Uh, you can, he's got some stuff on the CBC website. He's got the him. podcast network, Indians and Cowboys.com. Indian and Cowboy.com. Indian and Cowboy.com. I mean, he's just got this whole bank of interviews in his like archive of Red Man Laughing podcasts with lots of great people, lots of important stuff in there. He's doing a rap record. Is he? No, but if we say that on here, he might have to do it. Welcome back to our new monthly segment called G7 Radio, where we go back in time and we chronologically discuss, review the G7 Welcoming Committee Records back catalog. It's like an episode within an episode. Yeah. Episode two. Episode 25. Episode two. It's like inception of podcasting. Why? What's that? I'll, I'll just stop making pop culture references. Why? Because I don't get they them? Is that why? Them. Is that an insult? It's an insult. The movie Inception? I know the movie Inception. Heard of it. Okay. Starring Brad Pitt. No. No? In the hot seat, preaching the slackers. Spewing out info cheese whiz for crackers. DC hypocrites, bong hits and mosh pits. I've got the mic and I'm talking much shit. Born into privilege and wealth. Yet I'm still drawing attention to myself Networking with the liberal whites Chicks and tights Come backstage and we'll talk animal rights I'm calling you You can't take 10 minutes out of your goddamn business Before you give me a call Got my weights and my tattoos Never paid my dues But you know I'm singing the blues Like Coco Taylor I got what it takes One-eyed snake Straight cake All the jazz is fake Junior exec, yellow 3 OJ, Timothy McVeigh, and Barry Sheck, Fuck Rock 30 something. Hey, the world still owes me something, G. It's all about me. So last month we discussed the first G7 release, yes, but, but alive. Bis jetzt ging alles gut. That's right. And uh, people seem to be kind of interested in that. Four of you were interested. Thank yeah. you for writing in to tell us. Yeah, we appreciate that. So, hot on the heels of that album, right around the same time, possibly at the same time. Was it? Hard to say. Probably. Yes, it was actually. You know why I remember that? Tell me. Because I have a little bit of a memory about it. So, this was before my time. I have no direct memories of the process of putting out this album. But I did buy this album not long, I think pretty much right when it came out. I remember I was at Mondragon. Bought well, the, it in the bookstore there. The album was... Consolidated, dropped. I don't know. If, so maybe maybe there will be people amongst our listenership who are old enough to remember when Consolidated were a big deal. Oh, they were a very big deal. In in like the early 
early 90s, I guess. Yep. At the time, known more as like an industrial or electronic dance band, kind of. Sort of, yeah. But very different. Like when people think about electronic dance music now, it is kind of unrecognizable from what yeah. the kind of thing Consolidated were doing. But yeah, they were on a, well, they were on network for a while. Mm-hmm. Canadian label and uh, they had a couple records on London records or yep, that's right. major label Polygram and uh, they were a pretty interesting band. I think for a lot of people they were one of the bands, they were the equivalent of what bands like MDC or later Born Against or, or Rage Against the Machine or Rage Against, for other, for Lamos. Maybe closer, maybe closer to Rage Against the Machine. But than not the, even cl- not in terms of, not really in terms of uh, how well known they were obviously. And so in true G7 fashion we, you, we, you, decided to put out one of their albums right when their popularity was going over a cliff. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a whole backstory to this. Tell the backstory. I don't know it. You were there. I was there. If anybody no. knows it, it's you. The Maybe record, Jord. Well, the record is, Jord wouldn't know it. What would Jord ever know about anything? Unless it's about how to roll a joint. I was just going to say that. Um... No, the record is called Dropped. Love you, George. Which was, I love you too, George. Which was a double entendre. That's French for means... I know my French! I think it referred to them being dropped by a major label. Right. But also referred to, I think, being dropped in one's personal life. But clearly, they had been dropped by the industry. Right. At that point. And of course, they came to us then. (laughs) But there's a funny story behind it. Uh, When we started G7, as we talked about in the last episode in 1997 or whatever it was mm-hmm. it was a paracon inspired workplace inspired by the work of robin hanel a former guest on on this show That's from right. one of my favorite episodes and michael albert from z magazine right who were the the main people behind paracon yeah the main philosophical thinkers purveyors yeah and so michael albert as the editor of z magazine heard about g7 records probably maybe through Paul Burroughs, who was the founder of the A-Zone at the time. And the next month, out comes Z Magazine with this entire back cover of the magazine is a G7 ad. What? Yeah. Like, it just has the giant G7. Unbeknownst to you? Unbeknownst to us. Just like, what the hell? I don't think we wrote the the content, but it was about this Paracon record label. They blurbed you. Looking for some submissions on on the back. Cover. So did that did that result in a deluge of the most terrible submissions? No. As far as I know, as far as I remember, we had one response from it, and it was a phone call. I remember sitting in that closet. We, we finally got the phone put in in the closet in the second floor of the A-Zone. And the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was somebody asking about uh, the record label. They were in a band, and I was thinking, who the fuck is this? The guy says... I'm in a band called Consolidated. I'm Adam Sherburn. And I was, I just could not fucking believe it. That's funny. He was, but he was like, can I say, we just made a new record. Are you interested in putting it out? And then he said, and then I was like, yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. fucking totally naive, dingbat, jackass, asshole, loser, prick, know nothing, fool. And then he said, well, I'll have my, I'll have my lawyer call you. So he called and then he, the, the, and then they, they, they sent it, they sent the record. They wanted G7 to put it They sent the record. I heard it. I was like, oh, wow. Uh, you know, it was nowhere near as immediate as business of punishment. And even at the time I thought this is, this is way out there. And it's not the, I mean, early on, I think we, we decided we wouldn't have a genre. Right. 
but this was way out of genre. Like, way, way out of the non-genre. Yeah, way out of the non-genre because um, at the time, nobody was really into this smooth soul mixed with old industrial, mixed with Delta blues and a lot of Texas blues. Yeah. That's, that's all over this record. It's a very smooth sounding record compared to Business of Punishment, which was way more upbeat Motown or sort of northern northern U.S. influences, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of the sounds of Detroit or New York. This was like sounds of Texas. and But yeah, the lawyer called and wanted 3000 bucks as a licensing fee or something. And I was like, fuck, holy shit, I thought we would just put it out. Uh, I guess this is how this works. And having heard the record and having to play it to Derek Riel and Jord. Who stood there staring. Yeah, Derek Riel did, who was a founding member of G7. Right. He did not like it one stitch. He hated it. And I think Jord thought it was interesting, but maybe he wasn't excited by it necessarily. Yeah. He didn't really, I think he had missed the boat on all the excitement about Consolidated because I was still riding that like, it's fucking consolidated, man. Fucking friendly fascism. Holy fuck. This is, they put out business of punishment. This is like, as if, at the time, as if a Kano Christ wanted to put out a record with us. <laughs> you know? Kano Christ probably would have sold more. But I convinced them, and, you know, we just paid the 3000 bucks without... Are you serious? Yeah. Just paid it without even negotiating Holy or... Holy shit, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So ha just, having heard... Well, because cause this is what happened. This is what... They were like, well, I made a really strong case for why we should put it out. It fits the mandate. It's it's a great record. You just don't understand it, which is all true. And I had contacted uh, Network Records, actually. I think it was. like Somebody there and said, do you guys... Do you mind sending me sales reports for... For uh, the, the old consolidated record? records, yeah. And uh, for some reason, they did. Which is weird, isn't it? Isn't That's that weird? totally weird. They sent me these sales reports for Canada, which was like 5,000 records in Canada alone for their last record. And I was just like, well, fuck, there you go, slam dunk. I mean, they, it's 5,000 records. What are you talking about? We don't do this. It's fucking easy. It's easy. It's fucking kindergarten, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> easy decision. Having, having, giving no thought to the fact that we were in a closet um, with no experience in marketing a record, no connections, no distribution, nothing, no, not knowing how to advertise in a magazine or make an ad. And then, and then the next boondoggle of, of, of the history of this was when I contacted, uh, the people who pressed the CDs for us. I think we, how many Bud Lives we made a thousand and they just yeah. never sold. Yeah. Then, Possibly 2,000, I don't know. Possibly, yeah. Which is crazy, too. And then this, I was like looking at the sheet the guy gave us. 1,000 CDs. Oh, uh, they cost $2.50. Hey, wait a minute, though. If you get 5,000, they only cost $2. You say 50 fucking cents a CD if you get 5,000 copies. You're, it's a fuck that's three bucks on a hun. <laughs> Let's you'd be fucking, crazy. You'd be crazy. You'd be crazy not, not to get five thousand. That's free money right there. They're gonna sell five thousand. They sold five thousand last record just in Canada. <laughs> that was my argument. <laughs> and to this day, how many do we sit upon, Derek? Um, four thousand nine hundred and fifty, approximately. I think no, um, it's not. It's probably closer to four thousand. Really? I think the. But we also kind of like 
we gave a lot away as free CDs when we did mail mm-hmm. order. Uh, we included them in the box sets yeah. that we did. The, but yes, very few people willingly gave money to own that CD. Yeah, and th- and this is the tragedy of this record because for those that actually took the time to listen to the record, I think it's understood that this is a a record that fits in well in their catalog and is to this day a relevant record. This record could have been released this year and you wouldn't know that yeah. it was a dated... No, it's not dated at all. Because it was so fucking far ahead of its goddamn time, no one got it back then, and we didn't yeah. know what to do with it. Screen, check, and a video con, a white trash cul-de-sac. Five years I've been creeping this slack of town, CPO crack of town, it's going down. Just do it embedded in your psyche. Sometimes all I want to say is, night. period in time in the past present or future where this a record like this could ever be a commercial success well you don't know if they were a young group of people and this came out right now and it got into the college yeah fucking thing you know then but at the time they were already in their mid-30s probably yeah they were older guys i went when they came and played one show in canada on this record and i Mm. went to it in toronto and they were older guys already you know I was 26 or something and I was like holy fuck these guys are like dads or something it's hard you know listening listening to it again I listened to it quite a bit when it first came out and and on and off over the years and listening to it again today it's no less challenging than it was when I first heard it on the one hand there are some songs that I really like and that I think just as songs even if you kind of strip away sort of the bigger picture of the album because it's almost it's almost like a concept album there's all these themes that kind of run throughout and connecting ideas and stories right through the end but like there's some songs that stand out just on their own and i like how it's sonically challenging and some of the ideas are challenging but fuck man it's just a difficult record yeah well i think i i think the musical themes they were touching on were not cool at all at the time. Yeah. And again, maybe aren't now, but they were the least cool. Like playing this kind of Stevie Ray Vaughan, Texas blues riff. Yeah, with some wah-wah and... Yeah, and, and mixing it with like acid jazz and like this 
whacked out funk stuff and keeping it all super smooth and laid back i mean it's not exciting yeah it's not an exciting record it's it's sort of a it's a dreary reflective i mean the, the problem in quotes not dissimilar from the previous records but problem is that it's still an activist record yeah and that turns everybody off like especially it's especially because the activism most prevalent on this record is about feminism yeah that's right and and women surviving spousal abuse and, and, and incest and, and incest yeah. and and people can't really party to that shit I can but most people can't you have a rare ability I have the rare ability to not see incest or spousal abuse <laughs> um and one thing I think that, that we didn't mention is that part of what made Consolidated an exciting and challenging band in their heyday is at their live shows, they would do this thing where they had open mics in the crowd and they would ask people to come up to the mics and between songs, they would like air their views about the song, the stuff, or, that, the stuff the that's event, happening in the songs or the event that's happening yep. around them in the venue. And people are having like arguments and, and they're, the band is talking to them and it's an incredible idea. As much of a shit show as it can turn into invariably does, it's like, I mean, this is what we were all doing in the early 90s at mm-hmm. punk shows here in Winnipeg, getting up on, me in particular, <laughs> getting up on stage when other bands are playing. <laughs> And saying things to the crowd, it's it's insane. Didn't but you get up? Why on, not? Didn't you get up on stage at a No Effect show in Brandon? I did get up on stage at a No Effect. How did show they in let Brandon. you up there? I don't know. I and just you, and you were there. bagging on the people. I was bagging slamming. on the people in the pit. You know, I was trying to watch the band. Getting people are jumping on my head at a No Effect show. At a no in Brandon. Effect show. And then I think Gary Vickers was there, and he yells at me, "Fuck Hogue, we're in Brandon." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that That's was funny. that was. De rigueur back then yeah. for for there to be, at least in... But they weren't operating in the punk scene. That's the thing. No, I know. Yeah. And especially because Consolidated did it in front of hostile crowds. Yeah. Which, which Super was, hostile crowds. Yeah. Because people were coming for the 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 dance, electronic, industrial vibe. Yeah. You know, they just, they were there to party. What band has been more challenging to its audience? Hmm. Outside of propaganda, <laughs> but even like think about think about say Rage Against the Machine, which I think uh, there's a lot of people who who credit their politicization to that band because right. they got so big so fast, explicitly political. Yet their live shows weren't really. There's not. I mean, they're going to say some things. Maybe they'll do some stunt or something. But there's no. It's not a challenging. No, you know that they were, the they thing were, where there's like combative nature with the audience it's a different approach but i think it brings out it's going to make people think more like start you know what you're not i'm not going to let you party and have a good time but i don't i don't think i don't think consolidated were combative the way propaganda was combative no i think consolidated was like genuinely like what's going on out there yeah what air, do you guys think air your ideas propaganda yeah. was like fuck don't you. care what you fucking think i assume you're all fucking nazis and here i come stop throwing hot dogs at me <laughs> So yeah, very challenging band, and I think that this record is challenging in, in a different way. It, maybe it's just more of an evolution. They're it like, is. Well, they, they, how are we actually going to challenge people further? Th- this shtick is done. Now we're going to make this kind of music. The lyrics aren't going to be as catchy or kind of fuck you. They're going to be introspective and disturbing and well, he's a, more the, thematic. I mean, Adam Sherburn is a genuine artist. He's yeah, a, he's a fucking titan of guitar. He's a real. He's a real musician. Yeah. So. He would be bored 
probably doing the same shit over and over again. And uh, I think just a cursory glance at the trajectory he's followed since then to where he is now as a musician right. shows his integrity. Yeah. He basically gave up on, on music as, as a commercial venture. Yeah. He totally gave it up. So commercial failure, I think it's safe to say. Commercial failure, two for two for the first two <laughs> G7 releases. That's right. But this one particularly, Consolidated's dropped LP that we put out, I think is from an artistic standpoint, right. is one of the better records we ever put out. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Artistic standpoint only goes so far, but I think that G7 would have been a worse off label, not I, financially, but just in terms of the the big picture, the catalog, I was always, even though no one ever bought the fucking thing, I was always proud that it yeah. was something that we had put out. Yeah. Yeah, good band. You know what? Aside from just checking out Dropped, which frankly will likely be a very challenging listen for most of our listeners. <clears throat> but if you're if you're into stuff that's a little more upbeat, a little bit harder, you should look back at, at some of their back catalog. Especially Business of Punishment. But I would really encourage people to check out Dropped. I think it really dovetails with a lot of the, the, the fractious nature of things that are going on in social media right now and video yeah. games and stuff like this. It was so fun. It was ahead of its time even on the subject of feminism. I, is that it for this segment? Yeah, I think that's it. We kind of, we got a lot of stuff in there, right? Yeah, no, I feel good about that. Great album. Great album. Check it out, people. Thanks for listening to this installment of G7 Radio. Yeah. Next month, what do we got? G7003. <gasps> Ooh, the weaker thans. Fallow. You want, you're going to want to tune in for that. I don't know, I don't care. Bunch of hunks. Chris, okay, I think we're I think we're wrapping it up here. But before we do that, yeah, I want to give a quick shout out to the kind folks who uh, fork over their their stinky cash to us. Blood a, money, blood money on a monthly basis. So we've got some people that for a while now have been supporting us through uh, recurring PayPal donations. I want to call them out: uh, Daniel Anderson, Travis Burdick, Richard Fisher, Tim Leafman. Joshua May, Heather McGaw, Benjamin Reichman, Dave Kutch, and Paul Fox. One woman. One woman. Yeah. So there is a gender pay gap. Keep that in mind. Now, in addition to that, we just recently, you know, we've kind of put this out there on uh, social media that we're, we're experimenting with this thing called Patreon. And it's this, it's pretty cool, actually, for people like us and also musicians and writers and artists. It's this website where you can actually set up to make a donation only when the person or organization that you're supporting actually creates something. So we set up a page for Escape Velocity Radio there. And basically, you can sign up and say, I want to give $2 or $5 or whatever. 
every time we release an episode. And you only get charged that amount when we release an episode. If, if we miss a month, you don't make a donation for that month or whatever. We're not going to miss a month, but it's, it's good because you're actually, you're, in a way, you're donating specifically for getting something in return. So we already have some people who have signed up. So I want to give them a little bit of recognition here as well. Uh, Josh Forrester, Andrew Legg, Cameron McLean, Cam O'Connell, Scott Robertson, Johnny Taylor, and Jake Wagoner. The URL is patreon.com slash escape velocity radio. Uh, if you are so inclined, I don't want to give too much of a hard sell, but if you're so inclined, you can sign up and give us a couple bucks every episode or not. Doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. We'll be fine. No big deal. No big deal, people. Episode 25 of Escape Velocity Radio. That was it. If you want to read the show notes, join the discussion, or listen to the archives, you can visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you like the show and want to support us, please leave a review on iTunes or make a donation via the donate link on our website. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud by searching for Escape Velocity Radio. And you can send us feedback via email at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com. Mm-hmm.